Hello, welcome to another edition of the Ampere Amplified podcast. My name is Mahesh, and I am a performance engineer here at Ampere Computing, where we make CPUs for the cloud. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by one of our interns and one of our senior technical fellows here. So I want to first introduce Erika Susana Alcorta Lozano, who we affectionately call Susie. Hi, Mahesh. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> and so she joined us. She's a PhD student at the University of Texas at Austin. Her professor is Andreas Gertzlauer. And she's doing some research in machine learning and how to apply it to architecture. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Yes. Can you share a few sentences about that? Yeah, sure. So specifically, the problem that I'm tackling in my research is it's called dynamic workload forecasting. So basically making predictions during runtime about how the workload in the CPUs is going to behave in the future. So trying to find patterns in the workloads that are running and then predicting when there are going to be changes. And all of this with the purpose of making proactive decisions during runtime. Yeah. So instead of reacting to changes proactively. Very cool. Mm -hmm. I, I'll share with the audience that we found you after um, I read one of your papers online. And you know I'm a workloads guy. I'm a CPU perf guy. And I thought it would be a real treat if we could bring you in and start doing some dynamic analysis on the, the CPU that we have. So it was really cool that we found you, and I'm glad that you're here. Oh, I'm glad you found me, too. I'm very <laughs> happy to be here, too. Thank cool. you. <laughs> and then on my other side, here we have Scott Tetrick, and he is Ampere Technical Fellow. Uh, has been here since kind of the beginning, inception of Ampere. And I want to share that you and I have known each other for quite some time. A long time. Yeah. 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 We were uh, aisles away from one another, just like one end of the other. Yeah. Kitty uh, corner. Yeah. Yeah. At, at uh, Intel for when you first joined, when you were new. Yes. And I was still old then. So <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to share, like, when there, when I was new, the thing that really stood out to me was we, we had a team of about 50 architects, and you and I were both a few handful that would spend a lot of time in the lab. And this, I thought, was put us into like two peas in a pod. I really valued being able to go into the lab and play around with the parts and actually like touch them, see how they behave under workloads and so on. And I felt that you espoused this as a leader as well and like the need for engineers to look at their baby. It, it is really important we do this work because we don't know the answer. And we hope to gain some insight along the way, but occasionally we are way off. And actually, I enjoy those times when we're way off. It's the most fun to try and figure out what is happening. Ampere's even a little bit more complicated because it's a bigger system. You know, when we first started on this, we were relatively simple things now that we look back on it, but uh, 128 cores running uh, simultaneously, where, what's going to go wrong next, yeah. uh, really? Yeah, and that, that's the thing that I've recognized also is that we, many of us sit at our desks for many hours looking at simulation results, uh, spreadsheet models, and so on, but when the rubber hits the road and you go into the lab, 
And now there's this discrepancy between what you expect and what is actually happening. And that's really, uh, you know, I've, I've heard you say this. You become a lab rat sometimes. Yeah. And I, it's necessary to it, have these lonely evenings with you and the CPU. It, you, you have to. Eventually, reality wins over theory. And when reality confronts you in terms of the experimental results do not match what you're after, you have to say, where am I going to go next? Can I come up with some new crazy idea to try and regain or fix or anything? This goes right along with debugging, right? Performance debugging is the same as functional debugging in that sense. You have to say, what's wrong how can I work around it? How can I get the best result? Yep, yep. And so I'm going to dovetail now and and share that you know we have our interns here, and one of the things that we're doing with this podcast is inviting the interns on. We're giving them an opportunity to interview their mentor and try to dig deep into like what their motivations are and understand where they're coming from, where they're going, and how to survive in this crazy world of semiconductor engineering. <laughs> so um, I'm going to hand it over to Susie and let her drive. And I'm definitely going to jump in as well. And we're going to have a discussion. Yeah, sure. Thank you very much. I'm honored by this opportunity to get to know you both better today and even throughout the summer. And I want to start this conversation by first asking you, Scott, if you can give us a summary of what is it that you do here at Ampere. Uh, sure. I work in the architecture group primarily around the SOC. I like to call it feeding the beasts. Uh, <laughs> our, the job is to make sure that the rest of the SOC, the IO, the memory, the mesh components, the cache coherency components – all work so that the CPU can perform its best. Okay, that's a, that's a good summary. And I also would like to hear from you, what's the story of how you got to Ampere? It's a long road to Ampere. I grew up in Nebraska on a farm, as far away from the computer industry as you can imagine. My only motivation growing up was... I did not want to remain on a farm. It was not going to be the place where my life was going to continue. So I got really interested in, in math and science, went uh, from Nebraska to MIT, MIT actually to Intel. I started initially as a math and physics kind of person. I still love going back to math all the time I can, but I just found that the set of engineering trade-offs was much more fun than frictionless surfaces and perfect gravity. So I gravitated into engineering and got really excited about electrical engineering, developing computer things. I actually had an intern, well, not really an internship. I paid summer job <laughs> <laughs> at, at a test company. And we tested some of Intel's board-level products. Now, at this time, Intel had barely started on some advanced microprocessor work. And, uh, and so this is 8086 kind of things. That's how old I am. So, and these were used in things like ATM machines and lumber mills to make sure that the lumber was a certain 
humidity and uh, moisture content. And my favorite example was it was used to sort M&Ms because no one would want all of one color of M&Ms. So these were really simple products, but my job was to develop for Teradyne, test company, some of the testing that could be done on these board level products. So that's what got me acquainted to, to with Intel products. Intel came out to campus, recruited me from the East Coast to the West Coast. And so I've been in Oregon ever since with a couple of excursions to a company called Sequent Computer Systems, which was really the first pretty massive at the time, 30 processors, microprocessors at the time, which was purchased by IBM. I went back to Intel after Sequent and retired from Intel to really flunk retirement and go back to work in kind of the memory industry for a while. And then I just said, well, I need to get back to Oregon. The memory industry was Colorado. Came back here and started work at Ampere about uh, four and a half years ago now. Okay. I'm sure throughout all these experiences, you have a lot of stories to tell to tell us. So, <laughs> so before I move to your story, is there something that I've been thinking? Because recently I was talking to some junior people in the team, and they were saying how they believe, or maybe more like uh, they had a hard time admitting that they are a computer architect. And I, yeah, I mean, maybe in our minds there are many things that we think we have to do or we have to know before we can call ourselves architects. And we're going to be talking about all the computer architecture that you have been doing. I want to ask you, like, has this ever happened to you? And what do you think a computer architect is? Uh, so I think a computer architect is anybody who tries to balance what's going on inside a computer. And we all do that. So we shouldn't set a real high wall that we have to try and climb over. It's not about branch predictors and it's not about those kind of real specific microarchitectural things. It's really important for us as computer architects to reach outside of our little boundary. It's way too easy to be the world's expert on this little micro dot. And if you have to just be the expert on the micro dot, we have to find somebody else who gets you acquainted with the rest of the system. So it's much more important for us to come in as architects with some sort of balance where we can see how our decisions affect others. Mm -hmm. It's about the big picture. Absolutely. You have to get everything working together in, in systems of this complexity. It's not about 2,000 horsepower engine with one wheel. It's actually about trying to find some balance. I think if you're thinking about that balance day to day, then you're a computer architect. <laughs> if you're trying to balance all these different resources to figure out how can I satisfy the customer's needs in the time frame, in the cost frame, right? 
then those are the kinds of things that most computer architects are thinking about. So that would make you a computer architect. <laughs> yeah, maybe what we think is like, oh, I have to come up with, I don't know, like you said, like a new branch predictor or something like that. But yes, I mean, I guess architecture is about a lot more. Sometimes it's about what to turn off, not to <laughs> not what to add. You know, there are so many times where we have too much horsepower and we have to turn something down just to be more fair, higher average throughput versus higher max throughput. Those are the kind of decisions architects need to make. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. And speaking of turning off things, <laughs> so, so, so I know that throughout your career and your experience, a lot of things have been changing in the processor world, like uh, the end of Moore's Law and all these things that people are talking about. And I'm wondering what, uh, maybe we can call them, like what challenges you faced in the past and how they have changed over time. In a number of cases, we were really severely limited by the rest of the platform. We had limited I.O. capability or limited memory capability. And many of those areas have disappeared. If you think about some of the early work at, at Intel or PCs, these are limited memory channels that are used by a small number of cores. Now we're at eight memory channels used by a huge number of cores. And those memory channels are much more capable. In the I.O. world, we've gone from simple things to really high bandwidth capabilities that even impact the microarchitectures in some way. They do shared memory things across the system. So I think the, the rest of the platform stepped up a lot. And so our next issue is really how we can best design cores that can take advantage of what the rest of the platform has done in those cases. Okay. And would you say that the cores have to be aware of like what other cores are doing too? Yes. I tell people this is Star Trek mentality for me, right? This is the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. We have many cores. We have lots of use for each one of those cores. Our customers don't want a bad core. They also don't want the greatest core in the world if all the other ones are kind of mediocre. They have to be the same. And how do we make sure that whenever you contract for cloud services on an Ampere machine, you get, when you buy eight cores, you get eight cores worth of workout. When you buy a hundred cores. You get a hundred cores worth of workout. It's not about one core and that's really great. And all the other cores are kind of bad. Mm -hmm. Okay. I see. And now that you've mentioned the customers, I mean, I think like someone in your position, you have a lot of interactions with customers and how do you manage or prioritize the features that customers want there's multiple customers too. Yeah. Is it usually like they're all asking the same thing? They're asking different things. Maybe are they like redundant or are what if like competing they're pulling? Yeah. yeah. You know, there's an interesting mix. I think it's probably 
80% are common. And then there's 20% on either end, which are uncommon. In the cloud marketplace, because there are a few number of very large customers, I think there's more commonality than dissimilarity. So those customers are competing against one another. In order to compete, they have to have some distinguishing characteristic. Sometimes this is what they can add into the system. Sometimes it's what their software implements. Sometimes it's even part of how they deliver the system to people. Do they have large warehouses of clouds or do they distribute their clouds into their customers' facilities? So I would say for the most part, we have a pretty clear understanding of where the customers think the same. It's where they think differently that we really have to work. And in some of those cases, they're important to the customer's differentiation. Uh, Some customers like two sockets and others like just one socket. Just depends on where they're aiming. Mm, I see. And I I mean, I would like to get... (laughs) if possible, more specific with examples of like uh, other features asking. Because when I think of customers, I just think like, oh, maybe they want the processor to be faster. (laughs) But I am guessing some features can be like very specific, like the security features, like like, we need this specific Mm -hmm. standard and then you go and implement it. But there are other features that give you the freedom or the possibility of architecting how you can... Right. Uh, So, for example, some customers may come up with uh, a novel packaging concept, and they might want to connect their systems in a particularly interesting way, which drives our I.O. content something uh, higher bandwidth, or they want more connections between two sockets or things like that. So, Those come generally in conversations with their architecture groups. So they will just say, wait, we've got this idea about how we want to create a rack of servers and we're going to do it this way. You know, we go back and forth and say, well, we could do this, we could do this. You know, maybe we can't do some of these other things. In some cases, these customers also may have underlying requirements. One of the ones we get frequently is, I want so much memory per core, or I want so much bandwidth per core. Per customer, that number varies a bit. And so they would say, can we construct a system that has each individual channel has some strange number of gigabytes per channel? But that's just because that's where their architecture has led them And we just have to come up with the options that they actually have with the silicon that we've implemented. There are some customers that they may not like the number of cores that we have because they like to sell to their cloud customers one gigabyte of memory per core. So if you have one gigabyte of memory per core and an 80-core ultra server, it would be really great if we could put in 80 gigabytes of memory. Well, if you 
count the number of channels and stuff. That's kind of hard to do. Uh, I can give you 64 gigs or I can give you 128 or maybe 96. So if, if I give you 96, then each core can have one gigabyte. Oh, but then I have 16 gigabytes left. And they call that stranded memory. Mm-hmm. And so the customers don't like that because they have to pay for those dim sticks, but then they're not used. So maybe they can start selling 1.25 gigabytes per core. Will their customers pay a little bit more for more memory that they don't need? Uh, I don't know. So you start to get into some of these, they call it memory harmonics, Mm -hmm. numbers that don't make sense. (laughs) And it can happen for bandwidth too. Yeah. So, or storage capacity. So they will have a rule of thumb. And so for every core, I want four gigabytes per second. So you can add that up and you, oh, well, we're not even close to that number or something like that. Well, can we deal with this or can we implement some unique capability for some increased bandwidth? Okay. (laughs) It's good to know this. I guess something that's related to the project that I've been working on this summer and a question that I had is, Can you talk about how much controllability or configurability customers want in the products? And is it from the architect perspective, do you want to give them more or less? Oh, wow. This is an incredible (laughs) question. Some customers are really savvy and they want the keys to the car. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just for example, I mean, we have millions of registers in our silicon. Not all of those, we want customers to have the capability of changing. So we have to do some that are just for us. You know, they, they have to be a certain way in the system. Some cases we put registers in to experiment. We want to see what we might want to do next or look at some varied opportunities. But I do think that customers are looking for any sort of advantage that they could get. If this were to allow them to address a unique market in some way, it can be anything from how can I get more I.O. devices into the system? How can I get fewer cores? How can I, you know, versus more cores? Because they got a workload that balances a little bit more toward I.O.-centric versus compute-centric. So they are looking for any opportunity. I mean, we're selling basically a nice processor, vanilla ice cream that people can put their chocolate sauce and M&Ms on top of. And they are definitely looking for their chocolate sauce. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm thinking like, especially for general purpose computing, you don't know exactly what they're going to use the processors for. So having... like having some configurability is useful. I suppose when you know exactly, then you can optimize the hell out of it. It even comes into software, right? Why do we do a lot of work with the Linux community? It's because it's an opportunity for us to deliver processor features faster. So we could put something in the processor, we could implement it in Linux, deliver it through the open source community, and it can be of use right away. When we do that, we take just a few of those registers of the million and we validate them 
all the way throughout the software ecosystem so that when you turn that on and off, you're guaranteed some validated behavior, some well-known behavior exists now in your system. But now you can tell, like as an architect, you can have so many different registers that you could tune. And you have to strike this balance of how many do you actually have the time to tune? How many do you want to actually have visible to the customer because it may lead to a security nightmare of creating unintended behavior that you just didn't validate because you have two to the n possibilities oh, yeah, exactly. to check or more than that right mm-hmm. and then that leads to some issues so where is that balance yeah okay i guess it's a very open question <laughs> but that, that leads to your project that you're working on right trying yeah. to figure out what the right features are to turn on based on machine learning mm-hmm. yeah yeah, I mean, that gives me my job. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and so you were saying about like some features being delivered through the software. And I was wondering if there's like a rule of thumb or maybe some mechanism to decide what features go into software, what features stay at the hardware level. Oh, it's a, that's another great question. Because there, there are a number of customizations that we'd like to have in software just because we'd like to play with them. good example is error reporting. We have a lot of various errors that can occur in the system. We want to report them in some uniform way, but each individual section of the chip is a little bit different in the sense that memory reports errors different way than maybe a phi does. And so how do we provide something that can be uniform for a customer to use? Now, they don't really care that how we specifically report an error. If this one, this bit toggles before this other bit, they don't care. But they do care that they have a uniform log and they can see, oh, this is a good system. It's not reporting errors at a high rate. I don't have to change it out. Yeah, those are examples where customization, we definitely want to do as much as we can in software. There are standards even in terms of the firmware we provide and how it communicates to an operating system. So we might take information and describe it in firmware so that an operating system can do some optimization choices later. Kind of the Mahesh's point about exposing something in the register space might be a performance counter. We might tell someone, this event counts these things. And you might optimize your system differently based on the number you get from this. There's a standard way to report the uh, performance counters. So how do we take this custom counter that we've got reported in a standard way? One question that actually I was discussing with the interns recently was like the ISA, because uh-huh. some were saying like the professors in the university say that they have to learn x86, so they have to learn ARM. And I was like, I don't think the ISA is that the... Yeah, you know, you know <laughs> Renee actually said on one of our previous podcasts, the ISA doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so one of the reasons why is because the ISA is the interface that well, let's take let's go back a little bit. ISA matters to the point where you have software that could run on your ISA. And so if you look at x86 and ARM and PowerPC, you can take a Linux kernel 
and run Apache and MySQL and Perl and Python on it. And that's a LAMP stack, L-A-M-P. You can't say that for some of these other new architectures, new ISAs that are kind of coming out right now, but they'll get there, right? Once they're there, then it doesn't really matter. So that's where there's a dichotomy there. So let's say that your ARM or x86, the implementation matters. So underneath there, inside the core, you have to choose how do I want to, how do I want to build my house? So my house has two bedrooms or does it have four bedrooms? Does it have like one washer and dryer or does it have five washer and dryers because I do a lot of laundry, right? And if I'm doing some kind of like crazy graphics application, then I need more uh, graphics texture processors. If it's general purpose, then I need to have some more general purpose. So inside that ISA interface, that's where the innovation comes and where Ampere and some of these other custom CPU manufacturers are trying to, they're putting their own sauce in. And it used to be in, in the sense that there were a big discrepancy between the ISAs. Like if I had a standard Python in x86, that was somehow smaller than standard Python in ARM. I don't even think that's the case anymore. I think we've gotten to the point where the base level capabilities of the CPUs are roughly common, roughly the same size, roughly save the implementation choices that we can make, roughly the same performance even, in the sense of they touch memory this many times, they use this much cache capability. It's it's not really that different anymore. Because if it were, no one would accept ARM in the cloud. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, what I was thinking is that the microarchitecture is more relevant. Yeah. But it, I don't I don't think I'm experienced enough to say like, oh maybe the ISA can be limiting in some way, but I just don't know. Uh in the case of general purpose, it you know, the question would be is it ever limiting? I don't think it is. I think if you really went to strict embedded things, it might be where you're limited in capacities and connectivity, but then it's how rapidly can you prototype of those things. A lot of, for example, memory chips have ARM processors in them. It's because they're simple state machines that people can use to initialize. It's not because they do floating point. And so all those things are are stripped out in those micro cases, you know. And in the cases that we're looking at, we have fully capable processors. They can do all the things the x86s can do. I have one example of how architecture can seep into microarchitecture a little bit Mm -hmm. and enforce a certain kind of design. So if you look at program counter-based prefetching or anything that's program counter-related, mm-hmm. uh, let's say branch prediction. Yeah. So a ISA like ARM that has a fixed instruction length will have a number of bits that you need to create enough entropy to index into that table. Is There are fewer bits that you need than for something like x86, which is a the PC is totally random. <laughs> right. It can yeah. land on any one of those bytes in the cache line. Right. So if you look at ARM, which is like four byte aligned, by definition, to cover the same amount of space in your branch predictor or in particular your PC based prefetcher, you just need one fourth the size in ARM that you do in x86. So in mm-hmm. x86, it has to be 
four times the size just to get the same amount of coverage. Huh, okay. You know, we had mentioned about how go into the lab and you're testing some some feature that you put in and it's not doing what you had predicted it would do. And so the question is, can you bring up some examples of that? And how did you debug that? And was it a design issue? Was it architecture issue, software issue? Or maybe it was doing, that was just the bug. Like it was yeah. unexpected consequences. Yeah, one of the first examples, um, I, I want to say it was an interesting problem. This uh, occurred at Sequent. And when you start thinking about cash coherency models, you have that nice, simple, oh, it's a messy model. I know all these kind of things. Except when you get around the edges and things like interrupts happen. So when an interrupt happens and the, a cache is not in a consistent state, then you read something out of the memory. It's the wrong answer. But by the time you debug it and you hit a breakpoint and you look at it, it's the right answer. And so you end up with these temporal problems that occur in some of these I.O. aspects. Uh, PCIe has the same thing. That's why they have a certain set of ordering rules that try and make sure that caches can remain coherent. So that was one example. I, I have one other one, which has to do with prefetching, one of my favorite <laughs> subjects. Um, so this is very early on in Pentium 4 days, and we had a two-core system, and each with hyper-threading, and they had this super aggressive prefetcher. And we found that by turning off the prefetcher, we got higher performance. It was the first time you'd ever think that one of these microarchitectural things off was better than on. And it was just because the capacity of this limited memory channel and this limited then frontside bus, or, you know, now we have much more sophisticated things, the capacity, we had no capacity for this. And so every processor was waiting in line to make a request that was speculative. And so the only thing worse than standing in line waiting your turn is if you get to the front of the line and it's really not worth it. Was it so you're saying this is when you change from one to yeah, two so, cores? Yeah, oh, so, okay. yeah, so we, at that time, we had to turn off every, every prefetch. And we didn't have very many knobs then to turn off, but we had to turn off all the prefetchers that we could at that time just for two cores. That just starts in the first time where we had many and, and one. The other time, I would say, you can also end up with synchronization between these cores. And it can synchronize in times where they're actually delivering poor performance. <laughs> and so all the cores give bad performance. And then all the cores give good performance. And all of them give bad. And you would think that with lots of cores, they just kind of smear out and they'd all give average. But no, they contend for the same resources at the same time, and that contention keeps them in sync. Mm. Is it something you solve in the software? or? Uh, 
it's something you try to solve either with software or by trying to deliberately unbalance the system in some way. So can I do something that periodically jars the system in some way? For example, we could run with this hyper-threaded system, we could run three cores, one hyper-threaded pair, and one not running hyper-threading, and it would just run faster and get everything out of sync. And so we got higher performance on these memory contention benchmarks by doing the same amount of work, so doing four units of work with three cores, <laughs> just messed up. <laughs> What other unintuitive things have you have you discovered in the field? Oh wow, uh, the, the unintuitive things in cloud is fairness. Yeah, it's, it's for so long in a, my career, it's been make the processor go as fast as it possibly can. Trade nothing off in that pursuit, but it's really about in with lots of cloud processing. How do I make them fair? And even fairness to the point of penalizing processors to just be as, as fair as possible. We've had requests for people to say, could you interleave fast and slow memory so that I get medium speed memory all the time? Which sounds to me to be terrible. But that's the motivation. It's just you want a smooth table, not one with a lot of splinters in it, right? And so trying to get that balance is really important. I think the other one that, that's not intuitive, and I say this to people all the time, is everyone believes that the interconnect is the problem. <laughs> and usually, you know, the interconnect's job is make a request, satisfy the request. The objective really is in the SOC is to make sure that it's never a problem. And what can we do to, to prevent that? But every time we get an error, it's like, it's a mesh error. It's a mesh error right away. It's like, no, it's not a mesh error until you prove it. It's mesh contention. No, it's not until you, until you prove that. So is it tough to prove? How do you how do you prove it? Is there some visualizations that we do? You you have to look at performance counters. You really do want as much visualization as possible because it helps us to look for the difference. So if we can look at the activity across an entire chip and see that there's a hot spot, either memory or mesh component, it's real easy for us. It's interesting that we rely on our senses and our intuition a lot more than the data. Right? So give me a nice picture, yep. display it, because if you are just looking at performance counters of 10 digits, it's pretty hard to tell what's the difference between two 10-digit numbers. Scott and I are both really big on visualization and looking at, like taking data and then just like displaying it somehow because the human... Visual cortex can find patterns really easily, and it's hard for machines to do that. It is. And the hotspot analysis, you know, we spend a lot of time on it. And 
once you have determined a few things, then it's actually easy to visualize, right? You can, you can say, oh, I just need these three or four PMU counters displayed in color or something like that. And then you'll say, oh, the red is definitely hot. And you'd be able to deal with it pretty easily. But choosing the right counters, I think, comes from experience. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's, you know, and and to your point, Susie, this is why machine learning is so valuable. (laughs) You know, this is the shortcut to all experiences. Let a machine experience it for you. (laughs) Do you want to talk a little bit about your experience so far in uh, crafting the model that you have? Sure. So the background is um, trying to configure some, like do some prefetcher configuration during runtime by learning the, if there's a, trying to find that relationship between what the best configuration is for higher performance and performance counters collected during runtime. Uh, And how's it going? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I got to create my first couple of models. Uh, (laughs) uh, They still need a lot of tuning, I think. (laughs) But I mean, yeah, that's the same process I followed for my research. Like I start training a model and it doesn't work. And then you have to figure out how to tune it. (laughs) What? There's sometimes something that you're missing. And I mean, at this point, um, I like when I asked you about the choosing the performance counters is because for my own project, I'm thinking maybe I'm not using the right ones. (laughs) The other thing that's fun about the job is, are the detours. We do not make steady progress toward the goal. We make halting progress. We back up, we go. Intuition is an important part of our job. And maybe we didn't talk about this as, as an architect, but trying to train your intuition is one of one of the roles we try to come up with here at Ampere. How do you train your gut? And training your gut is not, I have aced every test I've ever had. It's, I've failed some spectacularly. Sometimes you fail for reasons that you just aren't looking at the right thing that something else is a, a bigger effect than what you thought. So you tune, tune, tune information gathering, and it's like nothing's moved. Nothing, Nothing's moving at all, or it moves the wrong way. I think the other part about architecture is you do need to say, this is what I would expect to happen. There's, there are a lot of things going on in the system. If I do this, something should change and it should be this. And when that doesn't fit the theory, that's, I think, just as fun as when it <laughs> does fit the theory. Uh, when you spectacularly miss, it's like, oh, there's either my understanding is way off and I have to go pursue some more understanding, you know, or something else is in the way and my theory doesn't. Uh, have that in it yet. There's a really good XKCD comic where the guy is standing on this really big pile of data <laughs> and he's like churning it with this like stick. Right, He's churning it 
And he's like, okay, I'm going to churn this and then spit out the machine learning, put in the model and spitting out some data. <laughs> and he looks at the data and like, oh, that's not what I want. What should I do? Oh, let's keep churning the data. <laughs> let's just try again. And then you look at it. And so it's like, well, there's a bunch of things that you don't really know what's happening, but your intuition is formed by knowing what you want to see coming out. Yeah. And you know when you have it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I mean, when I first learned about machine learning, like the first time I was hearing the word, and I was thinking, oh, this is amazing. And, I, and you would think like, it can do anything. And then you go and try it and it's not doing what you want. <laughs> but why? I mean, and yeah, it's a process. <laughs> I think it's a tool just like any other tool. Yeah, And exactly. if you know how to use your tractor really well, mm-hmm. <laughs> then you can... Uh, you know, plow your field and plant your crops and right. all these things. Yeah. And I got to say that I'm glad that when I first joined Ampere, like you guys both warned me <laughs> about <laughs> when I make my first model, very likely everything will go wrong, but it's okay because you can keep <laughs> going at it. And uh, yeah, but um, <laughs> in fact, it's important to actually see your model fail. In a sense, it's important to see that, uh, number one, you've made a difference in how something runs. So that's the first indication that you're doing something. And then, you know, the right answers can come now that you can change the behavior in the system, right? So it's now it's just a matter of time, right? It's just, you know, the system will succumb to, (laughs) you know, to us eventually, right? So (laughs) is it fun? It is definitely fun. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the reasons why we're at Ampure. We want people to have fun. We work really hard. There's no doubt. And if it's not fun, it's not worth it. The objective really is, can we laugh? Can we enjoy each other's company? Can we learn from one another? Because if it's just slide pieces of paper under my door and I'll slide them back out when I'm finished with it. That's a pretty terrible kind of career. Yeah. Well, and I think if people like you, for example, but I think many other senior people here at Ampere who have come back from retirement, it must be really fun here. <laughs> it is. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I will just say there isn't a time in a one-on-one uh, almost that I can remember where my boss hasn't asked me if I'm having fun. Uh, so it's I can imp- say the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I just think that's the important part. You know, it will be hard. There are hard days. They're they're definitely under the gun. I'm the critical path. I have to work super hard. Those days aren't as much fun as the other days. But if you can step back, you can appreciate your colleagues, you can appreciate the ideas your colleagues have, you can take just a moment to say, uh, you know, we've created something really special here in this company, in this platform, in this computer system. Uh, that makes uh, the world a difference. Yep. Acknowledge your accomplishments and share those with all your colleagues that you took the journey with. Mm-hmm. That's the best part. We have a tradition in the chip in house, which we just call the air horn. 
<laughs> okay, which is whenever something good happens, the system boots, one processor, air horn is is uh, let off. Two processors. Oh, another air horn. We'll do it for anything. And the interesting part is when the chip in house, uh, we let different people blow the horn. Yeah, blow yeah. the air horn. You know, somebody just had a PCI boot. Oh, air horn. Well, these people <laughs> are so excited by the air horn. Uh, we're going to have 150 air horns, yeah. you know, a day <laughs> kind of thing. But that's part of the fun part. And, you know, it, it recognizes folks for the hard work they do and the accomplishments they have. I didn't know of this tradition. <laughs> and when we had uh, the uh, Ultra boot, Atik fired off the air horn 80 times when the 80 core booted 160 <laughs> times <laughs> when the two <laughs> System booted. I think the tradition died at that point. But now it's just like one long blast or something. <laughs> it's cool to see folks like you, Junior, in your career coming on board to not only learn technically, but see what the culture is of crafting CPUs. It's definitely a mixture of an art and a science. And Renee kind of says it's, it's like building aircraft carriers. It's very esoteric. You need a lot of people to do it. And there's longevity in your career. Like, you know, like this information doesn't leave your head. And we want to share it with the next generation. And that's why we have an internship program. Yeah, I mean, and I really like to be given the opportunity to talk to like very, very experienced people in the field. And yeah, it feels so, <laughs> I don't know, so natural. And I can tell also like how you guys are willing to share what you know with us. And it's... Well, that's good. I think we search that out for people we hire. You have to, you, you just can't be an ivory tower architect at Ampere. You have to cross boundaries. In fact, that's when you know the system actually is working. When people start, let's say, oh, a floating point unit person, ask questions of the virtual paging system. It's because there's something important to them. They don't ask that just out of the blue. They ask it because, oh, I really want to learn. There's something we could go back and forth. I could do something. You could do something. It happens in Chimp and House with people across disciplines. So when the software person walks up to you and says, I have this idea for how to save power, which is way out of their lane. <laughs> it's actually working right as it's intended because the interesting thing with a long career is good ideas don't respect job titles. They just come to whoever has them. Okay. So our job is to make sure we don't squash ideas. <laughs> that's, that's a really good way to put it. Also, I think I can't remember who said this to me, but I agreed. They said, like, here at Ampere, we want Ampere and everyone to succeed, not just you wanting to advance yourself. And that's the feeling that I have here at Ampere. I really like it. <laughs> we're, we're lucky that we, we have one product a year. We're all looking at one product a year. 
that's our roadmap. We're all on the same team. It doesn't matter that you cross the finish line ahead of me or I cross the finish line ahead of you. We all have to cross the same time (laughs) for this product. So it keeps us all on the same page, you know, and we always have to strive for this is about us. It's not about architects do things a certain way and design people do it a different way. We ask architects to work with design. We ask architects to work with packaging people. We ask architects to work with software people. It's a great way to see all the complexity that's going on in the system. And in in some cases, architects may not actually be able to provide much more than perspective. (laughs) They can't really influence some aspects of detailed software. But they can say, oh, this maybe because the software works this way, the hardware should work another way. Or because the packaging people want something special, maybe we should think of a different way to construct our computer system that's uh, better for their packaging. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. And speaking of packaging, can I just ask you another technical question? (laughs) The other day we were talking about what are the advantages and disadvantages of well, this is in general, not just packaging, but more about the process, like having the process and the architecture go together versus separate, because here, like, we have to do them separately. Right. Yeah. So at Intel, or any place that has its own fab, actually, the process is part of the architecture. The process can deliver some integration scale. It can deliver some power benefits. At a place like Intel, you're actually making some design changes to accommodate a certain process or a certain capability. We're a fabulous place. We have to come up with good ideas that work across different technologies in some cases. So we have to come up with great ideas. We may have to come up with some safety net capabilities, some chicken bits, some defeature ability that other folks don't have, but maybe that's, maybe they should have had that all along. Maybe customizing for the process is the wrong thing, unless you actually own a fab. Mm -hmm. Okay, I see. I see. So can I ask you? Some yes. Questions? Yeah, sure. Okay. So you asked me about how I got to Ampere. How did you get to Ampere? <laughs> um, well, I think uh, Mahesh already answered that a little bit. <laughs> um, but how, like, what's my story? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I wanted to be an engineer since I can't remember, <laughs> honestly. Uh, I, don't, I think my mom tells the story of how when I turned seven years old, she asked me if I wanted like a party, maybe like a princess dress up or a computer. And <laughs> I want a computer. Wow. <laughs> 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 yeah, and slowly, I don't know, through projects growing up, like I was drawn into computers and then I think when I was in high school, smartphones were starting to pop up a little bit. And in there was a new 
a new major that was called mechatronics. And then everyone was like, yeah, like mechatronics, they do the phones and, and like program applications, everything. Then I was like, okay, that's what I want to do. And then I go to the university, I go to the tour, like the mechatronics tour. And they take me to these big labs with big machines. And I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? Why is this is not what I thought it was? And then one of my friends had gone to the digital systems major. And so I called him, I don't like this, I don't know what I'm doing. And like being like the fact that he was on the other one, he could tell me where he was. And I went with him and I listened through and I was like, yes, this is what I want. This is what I thought. Yeah. So that's like early on. So then I, yeah, I studied this digital systems and robotics major, which was (laughs) just like a little paint of uh, the robotics (laughs) math. It was mostly electronics. Yeah, then I finished. I worked in a small company doing, they were doing embedded systems. Then I actually went to Intel, like most people (laughs) here. I was in the virtual platforms team, so very focused on software. And my favorite class from undergrad was computer architecture. And I had like in the back of my mind, that's what I want to do. So... I decided I'm just going to quit and go to grad school and major, like, go do a master's in computer architecture. That's how I came to the U.S. and how I came to UT. I did my master's there. And one semester before I finished my master's, I I was doing my thesis for the master's. And I had a lot of fun with the research. And the research was actually what I'm doing now, which is applying machine learning to a computer architecture problem. I had just learned about machine learning and it really excited me. And I asked my advisor for the master's back then, uh, like uh, if we had openings and then turns out he had funding for continuing the project that I was already doing. I was like, that's perfect. And that's how I got into the PhD. That's how I wrote that paper that Mahesh read. And then that's how I <laughs> I ended up here at Ampere. So it's not just even computer architecture. You're like meta-computer architecture with machine learning. You're you're above the, the architect. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, sometimes the way I see it is like it's something so specific. Uh, but yeah, I mean... Mm. That's the nice way to put it. <laughs> Every generation has you know, something that they're learning and like bringing to this culture, this team, right? And so in my generation, we were the kids that grew up on object-oriented programming. So mm-hmm. when I joined Intel and, and we got together and we created a new simulator that was object-oriented, and then the, my, my leaders at that time had only done C programming and everything else, functional programming, they are like, Wow, like you young whippersnappers, look at you making <laughs> objects. I don't even know what an object is, you know. And so, you know, we, we came on board like that. And I was joking that like, oh, maybe parallel programming will come after us. And the next line of people will come and they'll parallelize our simulator because they've grown up with parallel programming. It never happened. <laughs> no. <laughs> We're still waiting for the parallel programming, you know, geniuses to come. I don't think they ever exist. Uh, but I, I think what is happening now is that uh, a, a new generation of folks are coming with the, the skills to do data analytics and machine learning. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're starting to see now. Yeah, I think that we, I, I would say the new generation isn't afraid of pouring through the data. 
I think for a long time we had little data and tried to maximize intuition. We got some more data, worked a little bit smarter. Now we're at a point where we can get as much data as we can possibly deal with. The question is, how do we uh, eliminate the extraneous pieces? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and sometimes even the question is, what can you do with this? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I had uh, a professor who said computers were this great thing. And while human beings can only create about 10 pages of junk a day, a computer can create 10,000 pages of junk. (laughs) (laughs) That was back then. Yeah, that was back then. Moore's Law. Yeah, and so now imagine how many pages of junk we we have. And throwing out the extraneous data is is the hardest thing we and that's why visualization is important too, right? Is that so much of our time is, oh, does this 0.1% really worth it? And it might be, you know, if everything else is 0.001. But if if there are other easier 10%, we ought to go for the 10%. Mm-hmm. What tool do you use for data visualization? Very early on, I figured out that software was a tool that I wanted to use. So I use whatever I can create. I created things for mesh visualization in Python. I create R-related things for if I have a lot of data, you know, and when Excel lets you down, you'll go to R. So it's only a matter of time for the rest of the world. So, but in general, I try to think about how would I put data together so that I can see differences versus just a raw column of data? I, I think it's very hard to extrapolate those things. I, things I talked about where things are in sync, that column of data hides that from you. You know, you want to see time series. You want to see things in a different way than than Excel or sort of standard data processing tools force you to look at them. So, you know, you get a lot of things like, oh, the average is better. Oh, that's great. The average is better, but maybe we aren't really bound by the average. Maybe we're bound by the extremes more than the average. Mm-hmm. Have you seen those cartoons where they have like two, two pictures side by side and they're like, find the 10 differences in between mm-hmm. these I find myself doing this sometimes because we have the simulator <laughs> pipeline, the RTL pipeline, and I have to find the differences. And I don't know if there's 10 or if there's 100. Right. right. But yeah. So that, I need to create a diff tool now mm-hmm. to help me out. Absolutely. We always need the diff tools. We're doing this all the time. We do it for our registers. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. One thing that's popular these days also is uh, like streaming data visualization. So tools like Grafana. Mike Julia uses that a lot. So you can see, oh, it's coming in live and starting to plot out like, oh, these are the counters. And, oh, there's a spike. What happened there? Oh, I can go back and look at it, but I can see it in real time. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the, the more advanced techniques I think people start to use. Mm-hmm. You could also have some algorithm, either machine learning or just generic algorithm that is looking for those spikes for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Grafana... I haven't played with that one yet, but I've seen the Mike Julier 
information, it's really great to say, what were the results I had at, you know, 143 and 10 seconds and 20 seconds? And it's like, oh, what was I doing then? <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's all there and it's all kept. And it's like, oh, this is really interesting. One more thing I wanted to ask is we, like, we are engineers, but I mean, we also have lives uh, outside or that combine <laughs> with our engineering lives. So what do you do to relax, to disconnect from work? Do you ever disconnect from work? <laughs> <laughs> I never disconnect from work. This is going to be recorded, right? <laughs> I like when, uh, you know, we have this Teams channel. And I've turned off all my notifications. Mm -hmm. But Scott, the thing goes bang, bang every single oh. time. And his wife got upset at him because, like, at, after dinner time, she's like, oh, that infernal racket. Why does that yeah. thing keep beeping at us? <laughs> yeah. Uh, what I do to relax is I spend time with my wife. You know, my, my kids are grown, so this is wonderful. I have dog. The dog is really a marvelous distraction because – he doesn't talk about data. He <laughs> he just looks up with big brown eyes and and says, "Feed me, walk yeah, me, <laughs> feed me, pet me. I'm here. You know, misses me when I'm gone. Those, those kind of things. Our kids are all in the Portland area, so we get together. You know, and we, which is great. My kids are out outstanding there." in various careers of their own at this point. And uh, I play golf, we go to the beach, we walk and hike. The hardest part about COVID actually was turning off, honestly, because you are always just a few steps away from work. And being in a worldwide company, it's way too much temptation. People around the world, you know, team says this wonderful feature that says you're online <laughs> which means you can answer a question right now yeah and you want to help and that, it, that's your you predilection do, you know because it might be tomorrow if they send an email you know before they actually see the answer we've tried to adjust times and hours i think we have more of that ahead of us as we continue worldwide you know with teams we work with but I'll, I'll admit it's hard. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> Having a big impact on product like all of us have also is a little bit addictive. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting part about the architecture role here is it, it's so varied. We talk to customers. We work on projects in different stages at different times. So we do get a little bit of variety in our daily job, I probably work on four annual product cadences every day. Well. <laughs> so what we did, what we're doing, what we plan to do, and what we really are way out there planning to do. So that also keeps it a little bit fresh, too, because your different parts of your brain are used on different areas. Is there any particular method or tool that you use to manage all these things? I'm a big getting things done guy. There's no satisfaction larger than checking something off a list in my view. And my 
wife and people who work for me have accused me of writing things on the list so I could check them off. That is absolutely <laughs> true. <laughs> I agree. I think I'm the same way. I, I, I use the Todoist app. I don't know if you've heard of it. <laughs> Though I like visualization and a super visual, that's why I have to write the list because it almost, it's like it comes in my ears. It has to go to my finger onto a piece of paper which then is visually recorded, you know, versus I heard it and now I know exactly what I want to do. I kind of have to go through that, that whole process. Maybe it's even the tactile part of writing it down that's, that's important too. I see. And about management time, and I'm going to bring my dogs in. <laughs> like one thing about like during COVID and working from home, and not only you like you're working all the time, but sometimes I just lose track of time. I forget to look at the clock and see yep. what time it is. But my dogs, they don't like. <laughs> <laughs> it's like six thirty or seven p.m. and they're already putting their head on my legs, uh, uh-huh. and then like just looking. And then if I don't pay attention, they will like try to get on my lap. I, so. <laughs> and they found these new cute gestures in COVID where they like like yeah the hand on the leg the you know the gentle oh yeah I'll put my head on your lap I, it's like, where, where did you learn this I didn't I didn't teach you any of these things but somehow you've you've figured this out so. mm-hmm. yeah so they can keep track of my time too <laughs> you know that it's an indication of the fun it's also an indication it's like it's wonderful you you have dogs to help with this because you can't get burned out that way too, right? You can lose track of time and say, oh, I, I've just spent four hours sitting here not really making any progress and and that's a disaster. Well, okay, maybe the exact thing you need is a break at two hours to walk dogs for five minutes to return to the work. Oh yeah. Why didn't I see this before? Mm-hmm. Uh, so Susie, so you've been here several months now. Have, have we behaved like you wanted <laughs> or how would you, how would you like us to behave, you know, in, mm-hmm multi-generational kind of, uh, you know, area? Are we, you know, are there areas where we should try to get better? Are there areas where we should cross, you know, we have more events, I mean, or all all those kind of things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, what what did you like? What stood out to you? And what would you change? (laughs) Have you behaved? (laughs) I think even better than I expected. I sort of got an idea of, the culture that you guys have here since the interview, to be honest, because I was able to compare Ampere's interview with other types of interviews. And since the interview, I could tell this is going to be a fun place. (laughs) (laughs) In general, I think the things that stand out is definitely the culture, the Ampere culture. I really like that. Uh, The fact that I think I said it the other day, um, that I feel like you guys trust me and at the same time, at the same time, I trust you guys. So mm-hmm. the trusting going both ways, I I really like that feeling, uh, and the fact that I can reach people from other groups or with like more senior than me very easily, and that they are willing to help and respond and share 
pretty much almost immediately it's uh, something that's very <laughs> rewarding I think mm-hmm. and uh, the project is something I really like as it's uh, somewhat similar to what I was doing in my research but it gave me the opportunity to explore at the same time something more like something different and with the feedback that you guys give me I feel like I'm contributing so mm-hmm. the feeling of contribution is really mm-hmm. good <laughs> I was just gonna say what it stood out but I'm thinking of like I feel it's been a very whole experience to mm-hmm. be honest I I will say uh, part of our recruiting process is we find people we really like and we don't let them go <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in in particular, in your case, Susie, in almost every case we've hired, you know, there's usually some lag between, oh, yes, you know, yes, I'm coming and the actual date of availability. I had one manager at Intel who really said, you know, they're not here until they're here. And so your job in that interim time is to make sure they actually make it through the door right and then you know the company has to has to do the work but i think you know mahesh is great at this but when we identify those people we just want those people um you know and we're going to do everything we can to to make sure that those people are a long and fruitful fruitful part of ampure we've had a hundred percent acceptance rate from all the interns in the past three years that we have given offers to, they've all come on board. So I cannot lose my 100% acceptance rate, right? This is like Muhammad Ali. He's got to retire undefeated. So I'm counting on you. When the time comes, we're going to make you an offer, and you're going to come here, and we will all have a good time making the next generation Mm -hmm. processor. Yeah, Yeah. I'm sure that's going to happen. Oh, my God, now I'm recording. (laughs) (laughs) It's recorded forever. So thank you so much, Susie. It's been a real pleasure having you on board this summer and watching you poke at our design and open up all this Pandora's box of like, oh, why is it doing this thing? It just, you know, we're in the middle of doing this bring up for Ampere 1 and trying to make it the best cloud CPU out there. And I'm happy that you're part of this journey. I'm happy to be part of it too. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, and Scott, it's been a real pleasure having you here. You probably know that you've been a a mentor to me, unbeknownst, or maybe beknownst, (laughs) for for many, many years. And and so it's just been enthusiastic joy to have you both here to share this experience. You know that I value communication and having these kind of stories coming out it really helps Ampere and it helps all of us grow also. Well, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.